You're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Alexandra Fernandez. Today in our virtual studio with me, I have Dr. Murakami Wood from Queen's University in the Sociology Department to talk with me about how spyware is a global problem and a threat to democratic freedom. Let's welcome Dr. Murakami Wood onto CFRC 101.9 FM. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, Before we jump into it, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please, and perhaps your area of study? Yeah, well, I've been at Queen's University now since 2009. Um, I used to be the Canada Research Chair in Surveillance Studies, although that appointment's come to an end, and I'm now the Director of the Surveillance Studies Center, um, which is a kind of pan-university center which specializes in, in surveillance and privacy issues. And I'm also in the Department of Sociology, as you mentioned. Awesome. So recently there's been quite some news regarding the Pegasus software, which is spyware developed by the NSO group that can be downloaded on most devices um, with iOS and Android systems. And specifically, a lot of Indian politicians, journalists and activists have been targeted by this. So can you elaborate more on what exactly is going on um, and what this means? And also if you can comment on to why as to the specific demographic of people are being targeted as well. Well, NSO Group is a really interesting company. It's an Israeli company and it has connections, at least in the past, to Israeli military tech development. Um, Although these days it's a completely independent firm. Uh, The services and software it provides are used primarily, as you say, to target individuals, um, devices of various kinds, phones, computers, and so on. And what effectively what it does is allows the person who installs that spyware to have access to a whole range of things that your phone or device can do. That includes uh, email, um, both metadata and content. Uh, It can sometimes include um, the audio and video components of your your device. It's unclear exactly what its limits are in in some areas, but it it basically can turn your phone or your device against you, essentially to, to reveal things you don't want to be revealed, your location, your lists of friends and contacts and everything you say and do using that device. So clearly this is really attractive um, as a system to all kinds of authoritarian and uh, other governments. Um, And, you know, I think this is in the case of India, for example, which you mentioned earlier, obviously there's been a, a very strong rightward drift. Right. In Indian politics recently, we've got a, you know, a strongly Hindu nationalist government, um, and they are very intolerant of opponents, of critics, activists, and journalists. And it's not surprising, I think, to anyone that they're using software like this to target those kinds of people. Um, I think, you know, this was actually borne out again by the reaction of some Indian politicians to the news uh, that was about NSO, which wasn't actually to say, well, this is a real problem. Uh, we should really investigate and maybe protect people's human rights. No, no, no. The, the reaction was instead, let's consider banning Amnesty International who revealed this information. Hmm, and I think that shows you everything you need to know about um, you know, what's going on here. Many of the governments involved in using this stuff are not at all um, uh, worried about the impact on human rights or privacy. I mean, exactly the opposite. You know, hmm. they're, they're targeting the kind of people who are concerned about human rights and privacy with this software. Right. Um, so um, I was reading the um, description essentially it was put out and it said that, um, you know, an international agreement um, would be 
is essential basically into making sure that these types of things don't happen anymore and infringing on human rights and privacy rights. But what would that type of international agreement look like so that the spyware is controlled or even banned so it doesn't infringe? That's a really good question because obviously international agreements in the past um, that have targeted particular kinds of, um, of products have done so on the basis the product is a physical thing. Right. right. You could say stop uh, the, the shipment of nuclear components to a particular country because you can stop a ship or a plane from taking right. off. You can inspect them and see if they contain those components. It's far more difficult to stop the export of software products, especially when they can be simply downloaded. You don't even have to actually physically buy them you know, on a CD like you used to many years ago, probably before your time. Um, so, you know, it's actually really, really hard to have an agreement that's effective in this case. Certainly it'd be very difficult, you know, to have some kind of ban on a particular product like that. However, what you could do is at the United Nations level, perhaps, is to have an agreement, a treaty of some kind or an agreement that would actually prohibit the use of these products or, or prohibit even companies existing whose, whose businesses, but you could work, you could do something at that level. Uh, the problem of course is that you have to get countries to sign up to that agreement. Right. And the very kinds of countries who are using it are gonna be unlikely to sign up to an agreement that puts them at an intelligence disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget what these products do and why these countries are using them. You know, already you have an international system um, of spying, espionage, where uh, dominated by, on the one hand, by the five eyes, that is the USA, Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, which have this historic agreement. And this was all revealed by the Snowden revelations to, in 2013, right? Mm -hmm. And many of the kinds of techniques that we're seeing NSO offering here are vastly inferior to the kind of techniques that those countries already operate. And then of course we can add Russia, China, France, and, and many other countries which have their own, um, you know, very uh, effective surveillance tools that they can use for this kind of thing. On the other hand, you have all these other countries that don't have effective state-run surveillance systems and, and espionage systems. So what do they do? Well, they buy off-the-shelf systems like those offered by NSO Group. Mm. So for them, I think they see this in some ways as a rebalancing of the kind of power of surveillance that's offered in the world. Okay, so that on the, you know, they can therefore at least have some of the capabilities that the USA or Russia has. Right. I don't think they're going to really take kindly to having those kind of what they see as rebalancing sort of effects in international politics taken away from them by international agreement. So the, the likelihood of having an international agreement, therefore, is extremely unlikely, in, right. in my view, um, at least not one that's, that has to be agreed at a UN level. You may get one between certain countries that it could be enforced, at least in some respects. So I think, for example, the European Union is quite likely to you know, have a ban on these kind of products. I mean, in, in, and in fact, I think they're already illegal under the, G, the GDPR, the regulations in Europe anyway. Okay. But you know, that being the case, it's really gonna be, you know, have very little effect on countries outside of Europe. Right. Especially when the software itself is manufactured in Israel. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, which is already under several <laughs> European <laughs> embargoes to do with the, the Palestine, Israel, Palestine um, right. issue. So, yeah, um, that so I, th I think in Israel is not likely to voluntarily st stop these kind of activities. You know, it's already a pariah in many ways as regards human rights and it hasn't changed the behavior of the state. It's unlikely, therefore, to change the state's attitude to its corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the answer is 
it's very difficult to imagine any effective regulation. But at the same time, I think it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Right, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, is there a difference um, compared to the type of um, software that, you know, the big five countries are basically using, you know, in comparison to um, what these other countries are using in terms of um, spy software? Um, what are sort of the differences? I don't want to say it's one better than the other, but <laughs> well, <laughs> we'd rather not happen it at all. But, you know. Well, I think it's a very difficult question to answer, first of all, because everything we think we know about state intelligence services is usually 10 years out of date. Even the Snowden revelations were, were dealing with papers that had largely been produced in 2010 and 2011, and they were revealed in 2013, and they were generally referring to things that were going on you know, before that, so in the 2000s. Right. Um, some of them current, some of them not. So now, you know, if you still think we know something about the NSA and the Five Eyes now based on those things, you're well out of date. And, and we haven't really kept up to date with a lot of the things that have been going on since. There's been very few subsequent revelations out of the NSA for obvious reasons. So at that time in 2013, um, as part of the Snowden revelations, we found out that Britain's GCHQ, which is their signals intelligence agency, had a suite of software they called Smurf Suite. Um, and this, this was designed precisely to do the kind of tasks that we're now seeing NSO accused of um, you know, selling to multiple countries. And it was supposed to be able to turn your phone into a microphone. It was supposed to be able to collect all the data from your email and so on. This was back in 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. Now, if one of those Five Eyes countries had that capability then, imagine what it has now. Right. So, and you know, and we're talking here about NSO offering that kind of capability that was being used 10 years ago by US, Britain, and so on, and Canada, of course. Um, you know, they're offering that now. So at the very least, we can make an estimate that says that NSO may be 10 years behind um, what the Five Eyes powers in Russia and Russia. So that just gives you some sense. I mean, that's a very, you know, broad estimate of what might be possible what's going on but um I, I would say that that's probably you know the kind of a reasonable estimate to make them okay yeah that really helps thank you um and even in the um you know news release that was put out um you said that this type and even in our interview for that matter you said that this type of um, agreement would not be dealt with effectively and it would be you know it seems really unlikely um but definitely needed um but, you know, you were saying, um, should it be a worldwide agreement? Obviously, that chance is a little bit difficult, but um, should this be a worldwide agreement or should each, um, you know, country or different um, like allies and whatnot kind of respectively have their own rules and regulations when it comes to software and program like this? Because like you said, it's unlikely that, you know, all countries can be band together, but at least if there's some little, you know, patches here and there, would that be better than nothing, essentially? Oh, it's, it's very nice for people in the European Union that they have greater privacy than people elsewhere in the world, right? I mean, we, we know that that's fantastic. But one of the problems is, of course, it's always the most privileged places, um, the richest, right. most privileged countries who are able to make and enforce these kinds of laws effectively. And it ends up being, of course, the people already more marginalized in, in global terms who end up with less privacy and less effective regulation and who end up subjected to these kinds of these kinds of systems and devices. Right. So, yeah, it's not I think it's not enough 
to say that we should just leave it to um, individual countries or regional blocs. In any case, it's hard to see that that works already. I, I said that the European Union you know, had better regulations and it may be that what the NSO group software is doing is, is already illegal under European law. But yet, at the same time, President Macron of France himself you know, has apparently been targeted using the software um, by um, Morocco. Oh my <laughs> which, um, which uh, it, I mean, in some ways is payback, right? Because this is sort of, in a post-colonial world, it's only, only fair really, isn't it? Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly sympathetic to President Macron about very much, to be honest, um, you know, in many ways. So, um, but, but at the same time, it shows you that even a bloc like the European Union can't effectively police its own existing laws or right. its own, its most important citizens um, in, a, in this environment. If they can't do it, then how a, a poorer country is going to be able to do this? How a more marginal country is going to be able to do this? Um, I think it's very unlikely. So yeah, I don't think regional or national law is going to be effective. I think you have to have some action at a, at a global level. The question is which kind of agency is going to do this? Is it the UN? Is it something, another kind of standards agency, a technical standards agency that could simply change the uh, standards in mobile phone production, for example? Right. And that's one thing you could do that might be more effective than anything else is just to say that, well, all mobile phones in the world have to be produced in a certain way that would stop this kind of um, software from being able to operate. Right. Um, and that, that would take a few years. But, you know, in some ways, those kinds of boring technical standards might be the most effective way through this mess in the end. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. And I like the fact that you bring it up, um, that, that you bring up the point in which like more marginalized um, communities, marginalized folks um, will be more so affected by it, um, which is a great thing because I think, um, you know, honestly, until you said it, like it's a topic that, you know, you don't really see from like, um, an intersectional lens thinking about it. You just think about, oh, it's a global, like global problem worldwide. Um, but that's, yeah, a great point to bring up. Well, as you know, we are not all in it together. <laughs> Whatever anybody says about the pandemic or anything else, it's just never the case. Whenever you hear anybody yeah. saying that, you know, you know, you've got to be suspicious of where they're coming from, that they're not really, uh, you know, delving into the kind of the differences and, and how this, this stuff is really spread. And if you look at who the victims are of NSO group software, it's primarily journalists in very, very um, authoritarian countries in high risk situations um, who have, you know, are basically putting their life on the line to deal with uh, what would be kind of conventional news stories in more privileged countries. Right. Uh, so, you know, somebody like, for example, Khashoggi, who was, you know, killed by the um, Saudi Arabian regime was his phone was later found to be infected with spyware that had been bought and that's how his movements were tracked and that's how his conversations were recorded wow. and so on by the Saudi Arabian state. So this isn't just about, in a sense, even human rights, although that's really important. It's not just about privacy. It's about life and death for some yeah. people. It really needs to be emphasized. That might cross in more privileged countries and more privileged areas. But for many people in the world, this could mean your death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great um, point to bring up. Thank you so much for bringing that to light. Um, you know, are there any steps that we can take to protect our devices, our privacy, anything that we can do, essentially? Well, you can hear me setting, letting out a huge sigh there. And, um, <laughs> Is it pretty I much mean, right of our hands? <laughs> there's several answers to this. I mean, the first answer is even Apple um, which supposedly is the most effective um, 
company at protecting privacy in, te in technical ways apparently was vulnerable to this particular spyware. And if even Apple is vulnerable to that, there's very little I think any of us individually can do to be better than that, unless yeah. you already are a technical expert. I mean, one of the things is there'll be people listening to this saying, well, of course you can do this, this and this. But like most of those solutions require you to have a certain kind of technical expertise. Right. Which ordinary people just don't have. And I think it's never effective as an answer to say, well, you know, you can just install this thing on the on this drive and then operate this using Linux and blah, blah. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, as soon as you start talking in those terms, you've lost 95, 99% of people yeah. in terms of their, their technical ability and education. Um, so, you know, I don't think those kind of things are the answers. It may be useful for somebody who is a journalist in a risky situation to take the time and the effort you know, to go down that route it absolutely is to protect mm, if themselves death, yeah if it's life and death but like for most of us it's not life and death it's just annoying um <laughs> and also it's you know how much time do we spend now you know in our lives thinking about ways we can protect our privacy how how much time do we have to kind of you know download all of these different programs to do this this job to kind of read all the terms and conditions of every website and every piece of software that we use mm. we already don't do that right yeah. we know that people don't do that so i would like that and this is why i think international standards is a way to go because i would like you know phones just to work and to stop this kind of software from operating that's my ideal world in some ways that's why even though i'm not a big fan of apple in many ways i think they're a very hypocritical company in, in lots of respects however i think their approach of trying to deal with this at the hardware level and giving people you know, phones that will be more privacy orientated, and that's what they claim to be doing, even though they failed in this particular instance. I've got to say that's probably for most people the only way we can go in the long term, right? We shouldn't expect every individual person to be a technical expert. Right. And to do so is to exclude many people again, right? There's another mm. layer of exclusion. Yeah, it um, makes it very inaccessible, yeah. Yeah, we should have software that works even for, you know, my grandparents as much as it works for somebody who can program in Linux. Right, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, very true. And it's, um, you know, when you're saying, you know, like, we don't even read terms and conditions, we don't really do like, even, you know, I have conversations about um, this type of things with um, my family and friends, you know, like, I'll, I don't know, if this kind of relates but you know just being tracked in general on our devices you know I'll say mm. something one day about a product being like yeah I was really checking out that something and then the next day it's like in my Facebook ads or like I see a sponsored post and I'm like let me just talk about it and we're like wow that was so weird but it's like a little bit concerning that <laughs> you know it's just become so natural and like we're almost immune to these types of um Boys, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, the key thing here is I was, I was having a conversation yesterday with a number of folk on a, another seminar and they were, um, one of the things that was brought up during that was this whole idea that, you know, our life becomes too inconvenient if we start to kind of make interventions to protect privacy in every way that we could, right? <laughs> things just don't work anymore. You can't get access to stuff. You can't buy things. And, you know, there's not many people around like me. I don't have a mobile phone, by the way, at all. Wow. Um, um, and uh, But I'm really unusual in that sense. And again, it's privilege, right? Because I can do that because I know that I don't need to have one. If I was a woman, for example, I'd be thinking differently. You know, I wouldn't be going to, you know, going on a trip to Toronto and staying in a hotel in town, in a strange part of town without a mobile phone if I was a woman, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, if I was if I, if I was a woman of color, even more so, right? right? So this this you know for me, yes, I, I I do it because I can, but in some ways I do it as a heuristic, you know, for other people to kind of say, look, you know, what do I gain? What do I lose by not having a mobile phone? Can we think this through? Um, and it doesn't work for everybody, of course. Does not operate, you know, like that anymore. It's not a choice for most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we end off? Um, well, first, I think one thing that needs to be absolutely emphasized in this discussion of NSO group mm -hmm. is that most of the research for this was done in Canada by Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. And I just want to say that at every opportunity I get talking about this, I want to really big up Citizen Lab because they have been working tirelessly on this for years now um, and tracking what NSO group is doing and other, other groups that are selling spyware. So. Um, I think people need to know about that group and they need to go and have a look at Citizen Lab's website and find the reports and the previous reports they've done about this work. Uh, it's, it's really essential and it's happening right here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's really, I did not know that at all. So thank you for sharing that information with us. I'm definitely going to take a look at that when I have the time myself, because that'd be really an interesting read for sure. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today and discussing this. It was such an interesting and fascinating conversation, and I'm really glad that we were able to um, chat about such an important um, topic. Yeah. Oh, anytime. Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.